Welcome everybody to this edition of the Art Business Podcast. My guest today is an alumnus of the MA Art Business at Sotheby's Institute of Art program, which I am program director for. Uh, he is Anindo Sen, uh, who was a student between 2019 to 2020, uh, which basically means that he, he spent half of the year being taught physically, <laughs> And then we were on a study trip in Europe uh, to the European Fine Art Fair in Maastricht uh, when uh, it, there was an outbreak of COVID actually at that art fair and it controversially suddenly closed down and we all had to go back to Britain. But Anindo, I think I'm right in saying that you hadn't come out with us anyway because you already had contracted COVID. Anyway, welcome Anindo to the podcast. Uh yeah, not contracted COVID, but yes, I didn't want to take the risk of travel because <laughs> COVID is already spreading. Uh, good afternoon, uh, David. It's wonderful to uh, be here and, and, and see you again, meet you again. Yes, and I, I kept in contact with you and Indo. I seem to remember we would occasionally have like more personal tutorials because it was awful what was going I think you were stuck in Kolkata and, uh, uh, you know, you it was very, very bad when the COVID um, out there and we we did you want to say a little bit about what it was like so, to... so i think on on the bright side uh, when i look back i actually feel grateful because i was actually uh, working before i moved to london and I, I quit my corporate career because i want to pursue my passion for art and culture full time and i decided to uh, move and study in 2018 so I first did the uh, foundation in uh, art history and then enrolled for my MA. So thankfully, because I planned it then, I was not railroaded by the lockdown. So out of the two years that I studied at the Sotheby's Institute almost, uh, only in the last four or five months, it got derailed. And so we had to move back. Suddenly the pandemic happened and the lockdowns got announced. It didn't make sense to be in London. Classes were cancelled. So we moved back to our cities, everybody from our batch. And I did the dissertation remotely. That's right. Uh, but thankfully, a lot of archiving and digital access had been enabled by the Institute, especially our librarians. They deserve a special mention. So we were able to access a lot of previous researches, papers, and I did some primary surveys also, and I interviewed people. So the world changed for all of us, but I think we all adapted. And uh, yes, I did it from Kolkata, which is where I'd moved back to during the lockdown. But I completed uh, the dissertation in end of 2020. And apropos the dissertation, this actually takes us, I think, to the main theme of the podcast, because you have a great interest in art and tech. Um, and maybe you could say something to the listeners about your your dissertation. Right. So, um, yeah, and I think if you're going to focus on this as a theme uh, in subsequent parts of the podcast, we will get in more detail. Sure. But uh, I've always been fascinated by how technology can transform consumer or visitor engagement and experiences. Because in my earlier corporate career, I was a marketeer and I'd worked closely with digital technologies and community building and engagement strategies. So when I was in London and studying arts management, it always perplexed me why the art world was so technophobic. And while doing my master's and seeing the ecosystem up close, I gained a better appreciation why. And just before the pandemic, when we chose our dissertation topics, uh, I what I chose to focus on was, uh, you know, how museums and cultural institutions 
could use digital technologies to engage better with next generation audiences so like younger millennials and gen z who as we all know you know are relatively under indexed when it comes to museum visitors so i mean pre pandemic if you look at it large uk museums more than 60% so almost two thirds of the population uh, the visitor population was tourists so who would straddle across age groups but then they are not gen z per se they are tourists and typically it's it's the two ends who constitute more of the museum visitors you have the children who come herded in school groups or you have the empty nesters once children move out you know older uh, so that's something that interested me and what i focused on is how they can use technologies like ar vr xr also artificial intelligence and i did a survey amongst this target group that is gen z and millennials to understand what are their preferences and attitudes towards museums and i got some really interesting insights things like people love to visit museums but usually it's when they're touring another city but not in their own uh, which raises its whole set of questions similarly people who actually uh, say that they love the idea of visiting museums even they when it comes to that while that's a stated response uh, they also admit that they don't visit museums frequently uh, in terms of how often they visit that was on the lower side so I, I so it was my my dissertation was very interesting because i did both primary research in terms of structured questionnaires quantitative as well as interviews with industry experts so i got a lot of insights and so although i was doing it remotely i really enjoyed doing it and uh, uh, and, and and you know so sort it of gave me a very good idea of uh, possibilities but but in the same breath i would say that at the same time the pandemic happened and the museums are forced to wake up because partly they were all closed and the survival was at stake funding had gone away uh, and and a lot of museums actually did a lot of things right from basics like archiving their collections making them accessible online to doing uh, you know um, one of immersive experiences like the vna did with alice or the one that happened at uh, john sones museum this year in summer uh, so and also uh, you know sort of uh, stepping up on their social media engagement from instagram to tiktok so museums have been doing a lot of things but there are a lot of constraints and mindset blocks that still remain from funding issues to capabilities and uh, finding the right set of collaborations and uh, there's also the dynamic of smaller versus bigger museums most often we talk about the bigger museums but the smaller museums are far more challenged and also you know uh, museums in europe i think are uh, uh, at a disadvantage compared to the ones in the us which have more private funding or in asia where a lot of new museums are coming up which are either state funded or have strong uh, private uh, philanthropy backing them so there are a lot of variables but i think in the context of my dissertation uh, i think i i was lucky enough to do it at a time when there was this cusp uh between pre pandemic and during the pandemic and post the first wave so which is when a lot of change was happening so my research was able to uh, look at that closely and uh, subsequently i've continued to be interested and as the space has grown so it's not just museums and uh, immersive technologies but also things like nfts and metaverse and 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 web3 as well as the the other parts of the ecosystem whether it is artists whether it is people who have a tech background but an interest in art and there's so much collaboration that's happening so i have 
continue to uh, actively follow learn research and write about it so that's where i am and that's how the dissertation has flown sure i slightly jumped the gun <laughs> i i would normally sort of start with some questions about your personal more personal interests and so on so but i think it yeah. i think it was interesting as we were talking about the interruption of your degree through covid um and then moving into your dissertation as you quite rightly say Although it was awful, um, it was actually it actually became quite a positive for you because, uh, as we know, the the art world and the world in general, and the art world in some ways, in particular, has 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 embraced these online possibilities and and got more into digital tech. So maybe we'll come back to that in a moment because I know we're, there's a few other questions about the dissertation that I think listeners would like to hear discussed, but. Um, uh, I was just going to come back there for, and uh, so in India, obviously you're 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 living, you're born and living in India now. Um, what what's your favourite city in the world? Okay, that's huh. that's an interesting question. So so I think uh, the first thing I'll say is I have actually lived, grown up, and worked in many cities. So I have actually oh. probably around twelve to fifteen cities in my life. So I, in that sense, I've been lucky to uh, live and travel to a lot of places. My uh, so I, I'll list out a very a few favorites very quickly. So Bangalore, where I'm currently based, is one of my favorites. It has been I've lived here in the past and I recently moved back here. It's it has lovely uh, weather, almost like a hill station, and it's not as polluted or warm or humid compared to other Indian cities. So it has those things going for it, and it's also a very young city. There's a lot of technology and innovation. It looks to the future. It's almost like an Indian San Francisco, and you know, in the U.S., there's always uh, uh, the people say there's an umbilical cord between Bangalore and the Silicon Valley. Uh, and I, and 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 I think uh, the art and culture scene here is at the cusp of an up upheaval. So so it's it's an interesting time to be in the city from that perspective. Also, amongst since you said in the world, uh, amongst places I've lived in or visited, I would say three cities that I really love. Uh, London, Florence, and Barcelona. Uh, Barcelona is the best. I, I found it very free-spirited, uh, visually very intriguing and spectacular. And you don't have to walk into a museum to experience art. You have it all around you. Uh, the walls, the building facades, uh, the parks. Uh, and, and, and it ranges from the Gothic to the contemporary and the overdose of Gaudi, which is and also Picasso and Miro, but especially Gaudi, and you know that stays with you. So that's Barcelona. I loved absolutely loved it. Uh, then you have Florence. I I spent a summer there learning. I think I mentioned that once when I was studying with you. Uh, I spent the summer there learning um, how to draw the human figure the classical way uh, for a month or two, a couple of months, and uh, you know the long pose, sight and size method, tonal values, the works. Uh, that's that's very well known so, in Florence today, isn't it? Picking right. up on and the I Renaissance. That. It was on my bucket list. So I, I was based in London at that time, and I wanted to use the summer to do that. Uh, but the interesting thing also was that I lived in the suburb. I took the bus often. I mingled with the locals. I made lots of friends. I learned a bit of <coughs> Italian, and and I explained. I, I sort of experienced Florence much more intimately than I would have done as a tourist. You know, uh, selfies, panini, and souvenirs. Yeah, so, uh, wonderful memories there, and London, of course. I mean, uh, at at a very uh, so at a superficial level, forty percent of London's population is people of color, and twenty percent is South Asian. So you don't feel out of place much. 
but even otherwise it it has a very welcoming vibe and i i immediately fell in you know sort of felt felt welcome and felt at home and uh, and and it's it's got everything going for it from the food to the culture to to the art uh, so i i i i love my time there so these are the few cities that i yes. love that's that's really interesting what a lovely place bangalore um sounds i'd like i'd love to visit that and it seems perfect for you as you say because it's got that umbilical <clears throat> link to Silicon Valley in LA, but um, what about countryside? Do you like the countryside? Do you have a favorite countryside place or are you a city person? <laughs> so I have lived mostly in large and small cities, but uh, so in so my experience of the countryside has been very uh, deep in India because in my 15 year career, the organization that I used to work for, it involved a lot of traveling because I was in sales and business development. And as you would know, 70% of India is actually rural or semi-urban. So I've traveled extensively. And, uh, you know, there are every part of India, especially the countryside is magical in its own way, because while the weather is a bit challenging, but we grow up in that weather, so it's not a big deal. Mm-hmm. But otherwise, the food, the culture, people are so warm. So the, the parts where I really love the countryside is in the north. Uh, at, at one point, I was working... Uh, uh, where I used to uh, be responsible for the states of uh, business in the states of Punjab, uh, Chandigarh, Himachal Pradesh, and Jammu and Kashmir, the northernmost part of India. And I traveled and lived extensively in these places. So that's my favorite countryside uh, till now is what I would say. Excellent. What about build? Do you, I don't know whether you're, you like architecture, whether you're aware of architecture as another art form. Is there any building that you've yeah. ever visited that you really love? Yeah, so that's a tricky one because <laughs> I am not that big on buildings. I, mm-hmm. I like more open spaces. So in that mm-hmm. sense, more of the open countryside and less imposing buildings in architecture. Uh, so uh, while on one hand, grand buildings are not exactly my thing. Like, for example, when I was in London, uh, the place I really loved was Regent's Park mm-hmm. and probably walking by the Thames and, you know, mm-hmm. exploring the places around. But mm-hmm. but at the same time, paradoxically, because I, I've grown up in India and especially in the south of India, where I spent most of my childhood around a lot of ancient and medieval Indian ar- architect, uh, temple architecture. So so that's that's what I think, um, uh, you know, uh, are very strong memories because they're linked to travel and family uh, holidays. So, so whether it's the Chola temples of Belur, Halibid or Hampi, these are famous temples in South of India, or the few in the North, which have survived, you know, uh, Islamic invasion or iconoclasm, or in general, historical de- uh, degradation. So I think Indian temple architecture is very underrated. And, uh, uh, you know, like I said, paradoxically, that's something right up there in my mind in terms of the skill that went into it, the visual grandeur and the magnificence. So so I think those are the ones. But amongst modern temples, when I think of it, uh, there are two temples that are really, uh, not temples, the two uh, buildings that I really like for their architecture, specifically, one is the Baha'i Temple in New Delhi, where I spent my formative years, did my MBA, and it was relatively close to where I used to stay. Uh, it's shaped like a lotus. I'll send you the pictures later, you'll see and you'll be able to appreciate better. Uh, but if somebody wants to check out, just type B-A-H-A-I uh, temple. And the other one is the Matri Mandir in Oroville in Pondicherry. Uh, that is a spherical dome. Uh, you know, so both of them are uh, more, you know, sort of 
humanistic uh, spiritual places more for meditation and yoga and they are both intriguing in their way as as purely as shapes and and forms of architecture they are very intriguing when you look at it and when you visit there both from outside and inside and i i love the idea and the values that they you know sort of try to espouse or make you reflect upon which is more spiritual and humanistic like i was saying and and uh, incidentally the matri mandir in oroville that i was talking about that's run by the ashram that um, Uh, it's run by uh, uh, I, I, it's it's run by the ashram which also used to run my school where i studied in new delhi so so you know sort of i have a connect to that in that sense but i'll yes. see the picture yes so there's there's a there's a really real relationship as there often is i think between architecture and spirituality maybe it be a, a christian church or a a hindu oh. temple or or whatever so yeah no i think that's that's great um what music do you have any do you listen to music or do you have any favorite music <laughs> okay so so i'm actually not very fussy about music i'm, okay. I'm uh, in the sense that I, i listen to music mostly in the background yeah uh, so so it, it just has to be something that goes with the mood or the activity that i'm doing so mm-hmm. like say for example the gym or when i'm on a run or a walk <laughs> or reading or painting so it could be something as ambient as you know i like coldplay ed sheeran you know it can be something that it's nice to listen to yes. so it can also be something instrumental and yes. obviously i grew up on a lot of bollywood music uh, in the 90s yes. Yes. so that's something i relate to a lot and and the part of india that i come from which is uh, bengal uh, we have a very rich musical heritage so so i guess since childhood at home i grew up listening to a lot of that but otherwise i'm not not very fussy Uh, I'm more of a nerd about what I read and what I watch rather than what music I listen to. No, interesting. I, I mean, I, I, I have. I love Indian classical music. I haven't been to a concert for a long time, but I remember one memorable occasion when the Royal Albert Hall Proms, run by the BBC every yeah. summer, it's one of the world's greatest music festivals, if not the greatest music festival. Uh, one one night for the first time they actually had an indian classical music prom it started as usual at 7:30 p.m it ended at 5 a.m the next morning so that we could hear the different rags you know pieces of indian classical music which which refer to different times of day including eventually the dawn and there was sitar music and tabla and it was it was absolutely amazingly outstanding very beautiful anyone any listeners who've never been to an indian classical concert just go and give it a try be patient you need to let the music take control of you i would say and then suddenly you're in the most often very very beautiful spiritual experiences and i've even been to such good indian classical music that i've left at the interval because i thought that it can't get better than this which sounds really weird i think it's the only time that's ever happened to me so what a wonderful sort of musical tradition you have in, in india fact, as well you also have a lot of um, performances at the nehru center so if i yes, if i come up in london yeah yeah that's the yeah. and also i live on the other side of the river in west london from hounslow and they quite often have really good indian music just in their local council sponsored traditions yes. hounslow has a large indian diaspora absolutely we had like a couple of weeks ago it was diwali and yes. it sounds like there's a war going on with the fireworks and i know that you experienced and worshiped during diwali and indo um okay. so moving on now closer to the to the our theme of art and tech Art? Do you? I can see a work of art on the wall in the back background. Um, but what sort of? If could you could you name a favorite work of art, or is it more 
depends yeah. on mood as you say with music right so so the work of art that you see in the background that's just something that i picked up when i was uh, backpacking in bali and <laughs> Lovely. I, I, it's it stayed with me for a long time but yeah so um again i think this is the toughest of all the questions because yeah. given how i mean it's such a deeper part of our lives to choose a single painting but i think uh, how would I, the way i would summarize it is growing up i loved portraits and i loved mm. drawing and painting portraits also mm. uh, so so and an artist who were renowned for it so i think titian rembrandt and john singer sargent they were my favorites i mean clearly these three and mm-hmm. if i have to choose a favorite it would be titian and uh, you know so so to relate back to my london experience one titian painting that i always loved was uh, bacchus and uh, ariadne, ariadne national gallery mm-hmm. uh, and and i've spent so much time on multiple visits in front of that painting and <laughs> it has so much going on in that painting from the diagonal bifurcation of the composition to so much dynamism and the whole metaphors and symbology of the characters uh and 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 no yes i mean obviously it's it's anchored in uh greco roman mythology but but also the human story of it you know there it's it's quite compelling and uh but but fundamentally it's visually very very interesting there's so much going on it's very layered and uh it demands repeat viewing and every time i've gone back to that gallery i've always spent some time there uh but i think uh, so for me it's more broadly uh, i feel more drawn to the artist than the work of art itself because like a while of, you know uh, so i i find myself thinking who's the artist behind it what else have they created what's their background what's the inspiration what's the practice so for me it's more rather than a single painting so even when it comes to titian or rembrandt or john singer sargent the reason i like them more is because of a lot of things about their work uh and and i think since art and technologies i'm more interested in so to stick to that theme also uh digital artists i have a clear favorite which is uh the turkish new media artist uh, refik anadol uh, he's la based and 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 uh, in the last 2 3 years his work has really come to the fore uh, post pandemic when digital art has taken off but he's he's been active for the last 7 8 years and i find his practice fascinating because it's both visually and conceptually uh, very fascinating very intriguing uh, and uh, he started with digital installations like we talked about architecture so some of the building facades he put up uh, you know sort of uh, visual installations but mm-hmm. he he works with uh, you know um, cutting edge technology uh, spaces like quantum computing neurosciences he collaborates with some of the brightest minds uh, you know uh, he's got work with google and nvidia uh, uh, minds for example and and not just scientific but also creative and he's used space data from nasa and 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 and, and works from moma's collection in fact he's currently exhibiting in moma uh, this month uh, one of his works is going to be there so Rafik Anadol uh, he's one artist i really like and amongst indian artists the one artist the, of course there are many but the one i would mention for your listeners is amrita shergil because she's she's she stands out as a beacon she was a female painter uh, early 1930s pre independence india a complete vanguard uh, amazingly towering personality died very young but created this very strong body of work and again she was very good at portrait so uh just just her life story her paintings and how she's 
bridged both the West and East. So he, she, she actually went to Paris and studied at the Ecole de Beaux-Arts and, and then came back to India. And I think she died before she turned 30, you know, and she she was so precocious. Her, she was recognized for uh, her art by the time she was 16, I think. And it's only 14, 15 years of her practice, but she's she's currently one of the, I mean, even if you take the art market, her in the auctions, hers is right at the top in terms of the prices itself. Sure. But yeah, so that's that's those are the artists that are my favorites. Brilliant, and I'll I'll get you to email maybe a, a website link for the listeners to to home in on those artists. Oh, it's it's one of the great things about living in the digital age is that you know when I was when I was young when I was first at university or when I was at school, you know the only way you'd have access to artists is going into London and to the galleries. Um, there wasn't that much modern, and there was Tate Gallery then, um, and there was the Serpentine and Whitechapel, but it was quite difficult to get to know modern and contemporary art, for example, and certainly art from around the world, like from Turkey and India. It just You just didn't used to see it in London. That's a big change, I think, in the new millennium as we globalised. Nicholas Sorota, when Tate Modern and Tate Britain split and opened in 2000, he one of the first things he did is start thinking we've got too much Western modern and contemporary art. So there is now art from all over the world, and that's a, that's generally spread, which is fantastic. But, you know, also, you can only look at these artists in books. I think the first time I saw an Andy Warhol was just in a book from the library when I was probably about 11. And I thought, this is cool. I, you know, I love the pop art thing. And the Liechtenstein, of course, as a young boy with the machine gunners, you know, and so on. Um, so, you know, I don't think students today realise how lucky they are that they can, they're kind of lucky and unlucky because they're almost bombarded now with too many images. But at least I can point them to websites where they can look at these artists that you are suggesting that they might find interesting. And then moving back to your Turkish artist who um, who you said is interested in tech and digital and has worked in buildings and so on. I was just thinking an earlier podcast I did um, was with an emerging artist uh, living in London, an African artist called Kojo Marfo, and he he um, his works were digitised and and and, uh, and and projected as it were onto a building near Oxford Circus. And that what was amazing and you, what, that was really quite pioneering because I don't remember ever seeing like an emerging contemporary artist being shown such big time exposure in somewhere like Oxford Street, which is quite a popular, almost lo- almost low brow sort of shopping street. So we've seen the, the ability of, 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 of digital um, to, 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 to show like analog paintings are being showed in this amazing digital uh, experience. So that strikes me as being, you know, quite a new thing that we might talk about from now on. I was just coming back to your dissertation. I think the listeners, because quite a lot of my current students are, are, will be listening to this and come, coming back to your dissertation, um, you said that you did a survey to get responses from particularly younger people about their museum experiences and what they might think of digital and so on. Can you say a little bit more? I, I seem to remember, Anindo, that you you said it wasn't enough to use just a free free software for this because it didn't it didn't give you enough options in the survey. So I think by paying a little bit more money, can you say how that worked and, and, and why it was worth sort of you know putting a little bit of money into the survey software so you've got much, much more sophisticated back, you know, answers. Yeah, so I think I'll come to that, but I think uh, to give a slightly more robust context, sure. I think, uh, uh, you know, when 
any research needs a good research design, a robust research design. Uh, so therefore, depending on what dissertation they are doing, so there, there is a tendency to focus more on secondary research because that's easier to do. You have access to books and papers, etc. But I would always encourage students to look at primary forms of research and a combination of quantitative as well as qualitative form of research, depending on what their thesis is. But but definitely, if there is scope and need, you should explore quantitative forms of research. Uh, but so so I think um, uh, so um, so what I had done is, of course, I studied a lot of case studies, which was more secondary data based case studies of museums and cultural institutions who had done implemented uh you know sort of digital technology based projects like tate modern which you were referring to they had done an artificial intelligence based project with microsoft in 2016 they had done a uh, uh, modigliani uh, virtual reality immersive exhibition in 2018 so i had studied those case studies in fact just before the pandemic and before i started the uh, dissertation um the louvre had done a mona lisa immersive uh, to coincide with 500 years of Leonardo. So, so I had studied all that. So that was one part of the research. The other part was to do uh, uh, in-depth interviews with uh, subject matter experts, industry leaders, uh, because uh, 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 and leading consultants, because they are the ones who drive, influence, and shape change in the industry. And so it was important to pick their brains. So I spoke to uh, really senior people and I was lucky to access them and I think paradoxically because I was remotely based and the pandemic was happening they were probably more easily accessible because it was through zoom calls like this one and the third part of the research was to really understand because I, I've been a marketer all my life and a consumer marketer and a business strategist so for me everything starts from who the thing is for so if the museums exist they do not exist for in my mind at least for a few art historians to be able to access some priceless artifacts and to do research. I completely discount that in my mind, unlike most people in the art world. For me, it is for public access. It is for the next generation to be able to access the heritage. It is to educate them, to entertain them, to engage with them. So therefore, it was important for me in my dissertation to actually reach out to that audience. Now, because I was back in Calcutta at that time, if I was in London, I would have probably uh, you know, done in-person surveys with people, handed out uh, things. Uh, but since I was not able to do that, I had to do it digitally. So I I used, I think, if I remember correctly, the SurveyMonkey, which is one of the most uh, popular survey online survey tools that is available. And the thing that you're referring to, yes, I explained to you during my dissertation presentation, is, is that uh, the problem with digital surveys is that they often tend to be, there's a question mark around it, whether they're robust or not. Because you because a key thing to like I was saying at the right at the outset that your research methodology in terms of design and execution must be robust for your findings to be robust. So I'll not get into the design since we're talking execution. So in, in an in-person system, you would probably ask them a few filter questions to, to be clear that they're the right age, the right demographics, the right, uh, you know, sort of whatever are our filters, whether they're demographic, psychographic, usage-based, etc. And then you would start the questionnaire. So what happens typically, you, after asking a few questions, I might rule out or reject some of the potential respondents. 
But in a digital kind of a uh, interface, you don't have that option unless you know the person personally and you're sending them an email. Uh, so in a survey monkey kind of a thing, when you actually take the paid option, they allow you to choose the filters. And these people are part of their M-panel database. So, so it just becomes a little more robust. So I was able to choose the right age groups, the right location. So for example, I was clear that even if it's meant spending a bit of money, uh, but I wanted a perspective that was both European as well as American and Asian. So I used stratified sampling. Uh, uh, simply put, I had a sample size which I broke down into, uh, you know, geographically into American, European, uh, British, as well as Asian, such that each of these samples were statistically significant for further analysis. Uh, because if I do it randomly, then I could have a very small Asian population. I could have a very large British population. So, uh, so I, I use the statistical uh, logics and concepts as well. And uh, that's what the paid uh, uh, approach to uh, it allows. So it, it, it gives you further options to choose your filters, uh, more sharply define your target audience, and run, run potential respondents through that before you do the answering. And uh, and actually, I before I did that, I had never tried uh, digital sampling and research, to be frank with you. But I had a very good experience because uh, I thought that the quality of answers were, was quite good. And, uh, and also, it tells you a lot of things which we don't realize. So I don't know whether I got that information because it was a paid option or everybody gets it. But for example, it told me how much time each of these respondents had taken to fill my survey. So that was a clear indicator which gave me an idea whether even if they were part of the impaneled set, whether they were just, you know, uh, making a quick buck by just mechanically answering it. So, but it was very few, but those one or two people who had answered my question in less than a minute, uh, you know, uh, I, when the average time to respond was say six or seven minutes. So I could reject those outliers, for example. That's, and that's really interesting. And, and um, just just to interrupt a second, because um, I think the listeners will be probably wanted to ask this question. Uh, so basically, you're, you're, you you pay for this extra filtering ability and targeting ability for some for something like SurveyMonkey. There are other <laughs> commercial questionnaires surveys out there, um, and uh, I'm sure some of our students will use SurveyMonkey. Others might use others, um, but I think this is really useful for them because they're understanding what they can do with these. Um, how do they? So you're saying that they, so if you, you can also put filters saying, I only want respondents say between 18 and 27, for example, but how are those people selected? I mean, do they, do they, are there, I could, could I go into SurveyMonkey and say, I'm willing to be a respondent if you pay me right. when I, whenever I respond? How does that work? Two parts for the answer. First part is, I think from what I remember, SurveyMonkey allows you to do a basic survey for free. So there mm -hmm. are limitations on everything. So it's like, yeah. uh, it's limited to 10 questions. Yeah, I've, I've done it myself and it's frustrating. Yeah so, yeah. yeah, so exactly. So it's limited to 10 and, and you know, you can only do so many multiple choices. Yeah. And very importantly, even the output, it does not give you as many graphical illustrations, etc. to look at. Yeah. The moment you go for the paid option, and it's obviously the it's it's based on the number of respondents you want to target then you a lot of doors open up so uh, so so you know you can ask different kinds of questions so re, so in surveys one of the things that really takes them to another level 
uh, analytically and statistically and uh, in terms of the quality of insights it can generate is when you can try out different techniques like rating scales ranking scales you can you can you know sort of measure attitudes you can measure preferences stated behaviors you know and not just simple pie charts and bar graphs in terms of how often do you go or you know uh, you know what is uh, your uh, you know sort of uh, you know the basic ones you know what's your income level uh, so so it takes you beyond that so i think those are the things that really help uh, when you pay for it so you have to uh, so you have, so i think before we think of this as a magic tool which it is but it is still a tool we have to know what our information needs are i think that's what is most important once we have clarity on what is it that we are trying to find yes then we can structure our survey and our questionnaire accordingly and then look at any of these online uh, you know sort of uh, platforms as to how they fit and and there are enough and more options they're very flexible uh, i i think um, it's good uh, what they could do is they could just do a basic survey once i also uh, the other thing i did you know initially you have to test out your questionnaire it's not like so if i have a sample size of say 260 or 300 it it is more sensible to first make the questionnaire test it out in a very small audience to see whether people are able to understand the question properly whether they are able to answer it properly whether any of the words that you've used in the questions are leading which can lead to biased responses so there are a lot of nuances to a good questionnaire and a good you know structured survey as well so which the students learn when they study market research so i think it's important to apply all those things mm-hmm. it's not while the money uh, and the you know the paid option is an enabler to more possibilities but we also have to know how to use those weapons so i think you need to put a lot of thoughts into it and run it past your supervisor and maybe a friend or two just saying look or maybe try as you say uh, the, the survey on some friends and just seeing if they understand it but the second part of my question is do we know i mean can can you actually specify that you want a certain educational background in your right. respondents right. coming to that and yes you know the just to conclude the first part is i because i had already worked in a corporate role in marketing in consumer insights so i was exposed to all this as a practitioner and i'd done hundreds of such researches but yes because most of the students in my cohort as well they come from a humanities background uh, they've done their bachelor's in art history etc i completely agree it makes sense to read up a little bit speak to people speak to the supervisor for guidance uh, the second part yes you can choose all that so these are the demographic variables so what's your gender what's your income level what's your geography where are you based so the mm. usual ones not just age gender and location but also a few others you can choose all that and then structure your sample accordingly mm-hmm. so segueing um an intro from 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 that which is really useful for for students trying to understand um how to do a survey correctly and uh, you know i may even get i suspect one of them might say can can we have a little zoom meeting with an indo so i can ask him some questions you know on how to do this because also i would say to 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 students who are listening um that that you have access obviously to an indosense uh, dissertation uh, the, the electronic version that you can actually read and look at his surveys and his methodology and i would really um I'd really urge you to do that if you're going to be doing this kind of research that is based on surveys and get some ideas from him and any questions I'm sure he won't mind passing on to you. But 
you are really interested with your background and your your developing interest in in, in the whole digital uh, art world. So, you know, um, our students have already this year learned probably too much about NFTs, they've been told, and the metaverse and so on. But could you, stepping back from that, could you say, Anindo, what, what are the opportunities for the art ecosystem that have, that have been the NFTs and the metaverse are contributing towards? What, what do you think is going to be important about that, if anything? Right. So I think before we start, just to lay the context, I'll start with a very interesting factoid, which I'm always fascinated by. Uh, and, and I love uh, etymology of word origin. So it's, it's something that I get into. Very few people actually know that the word art, so the word art actually comes from uh, Latin, actually through Old French, but it means work of art, something that's a practical skill, a business or a craft. Yep. And the word technology actually comes from, uh, again, through Latin, but from Greek technologia, which is also uh, a systematic uh, development of an art, craft or technique. So while the prevailing thought process in the art world is that these two are polar opposites, mm -hmm. but when we think with an open mind, uh, it, despite you know the way we are conditioned to think by education to think, etymologically speaking, art and technology are actually identical synonyms. So I yep. think that's, that's a that's a great place to start this part of you know the thought process. And uh, and it's just yeah sorry David you're saying something oh no no I I you might remember actually I do a very early lecture on the history of the art market where I actually look at prehistory and then I come to Greece and Rome the historical periods and I I remember saying that uh, the word ours could be some a pair of shoes is, is a right. work of art there was no right. distinction between art and craft and techni means skill and right. uh, so that that you know that can be any skill it can be an artistic aesthetic skill or it could be again making a being a, a quarry person or or, or, a, or someone who makes shoes right. so it's and, and, and just recently I've just come back from St Ives with my students and they will now know that the tradition in St Ives the Bernard Leach was was right. as important as a maker of pottery and ceramics in the 1920s right. 30s and still is in the St. Ives tradition, as are the fine artists like Barbara Hepworth, Ben Nicholson. Anyway, back to you. And I have great, uh, I have fond memories of that trip. And I actually went to the Bernard Leach, uh, the pottery studio. I spent time there. Uh, it was not part of our uh, class trip, but, you know, we had some an afternoon free and I visited that. Yeah. So, yes. So, I think uh, coming back to NFTs, Metaverse, etc. So, I think uh, I'll not get into the history and you know the crypto kitties, digital collectibles, etc., and how all that started. And so, because enough has been written about it, and I'm sure the students have also read about all that. But I, I, I'll just focus more on the journey, quickly summarize, and then we'll get into what are the opportunities, etc. So, sure. I think uh, so. If you see in the last three years, this thing really. In a practical sense, while there are people who say it was there earlier, crypto art, etc., uh, but it's only with the advent of the pandemic that that it 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 got the tailwind. And you know, initially it was about if you see the stuff that was written about it, it was initially about what is an NFT, and then it quickly uh, sort of moved to uh, you know uh, and how do we call it? So do we call it NFTs? Do we call it crypto art? Or do we call it digital art or new media art? So it was more around uh, nomenclature, classification, taxonomy, etc. And then 
then it was more about what are nfts and is our nfts are you know it was a typical uh, coming uh, the mainstream art world was framing it that way the the discussion and the reference uh, and then it gradually moved at a wider level mainstream as well as the, uh, the the other rest of the ecosystem you know this whole dichotomy between the cultural value of art and the financial value of art because nfts appreciated very quickly and uh, you know it was fueled by a lot of crypto investors and crypto whales and and then more recently it was a more ethical judgment about are nfts good so from a aesthetical value but more also more from a environment value environmental sustainability paradigm uh, because of its so called carbon footprint and while all this has been questions have been thrown at it nfts have also evolved very fast for example the ethereum merge happened which was basically the upgrade from the proof of work to the proof of stake mechanism but technical technicalities apart basically the uh, carbon footprint of ethereum which is one of the other cryptocurrencies other than bitcoin it reduced by more than 99% so it suddenly became very very environment friendly and the question became uh, obviated so so uh, so but so therefore uh, for the art world i think um, and likewise so but we'll get into blockchain and metaverse uh, but but i think before that for the art world they need to look at it not with fear or with uncertainty just because of what is happening on the financial markets and the speculation around it but look at it more selfishly in a good way as to how can it benefit the art ecosystem how can it be progressive for the art ecosystem and i think in that context um, whether it is nfts blockchain metaverse or web3 as it is called now uh, we have to think in terms of these various variables so for example how can it improve access to art how can it democratize it how can it make the marketplace mechanisms more robust how can it make artist careers more sustainable so uh, probably we can't uh, there's not enough time to discuss in a podcast in detail about everything but uh, so let's take blockchain for example because i think there's a lot written about nfts and uh, and and uh, uh, the focus tends to be more about how much the people sold for 69 million and how uh, you know started with that big bang uh, christie sale and how value increased and how now you've had the crypto winter and and the values have crashed and i'm not even going to get into ftx and and the whole meltdown that is happening currently so but suffice it to say let's look at the blockchain and let's look at the nfts there is so much that this can do for the art world so the most obvious use case is is in the area of authentication and provenance because what the blockchain does that is that it provides a decentralized sort of registry which cannot be manipulated by a single party or institution and this is not just art specific i think that's the other mistake art world people do they look at everything from their perspective but it just so happens that art is one of the few use cases and sometimes we can learn a lot more of how to make a tool useful for us if we look at what the rest of the world is doing so say for example what is gaming doing when it comes to blockchain and nfts what is uh, the world of fashion doing when it comes to uh, nfts what is the world of virtual real estate doing when it comes to nfts and then you can take those learnings and apply them to the art world and you will see clear tangible meaningful progressive use cases so 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 i think uh, 
And, and see, because I I'm an art world outsider, very clearly. I had a corporate career. I was passionate about art, and I committed myself to this world. But when I look at it from outside, I always find a lot of parts of the art world very shady, especially the art market side, especially when it comes to provenance. Uh, and I think it's the art world's Achilles heel, and it, it's sort of uh, the shady underbelly of an elephant that nobody talks about. Uh, <laughs> You know whether it's like estimates that are thrown around sometimes that 20, 20, 30 percent of the works in the older museums could actually be copies of forgeries, for example, mm-hmm. or the fact that a large number of artifacts in some of the biggest museums could be ill-gotten. Uh, the more obvious uh, uh, type is obviously the colonial era looting, Benin bronzes, a lot of stuff from India as well, because from the British times. But also what is, uh, you know, acquired more recently through uh, modern day antiquity smugglers. And and I'm sure a lot of our students would have followed the the example of where Louvre uh, also got, you know, sort of is being questioned currently related to the Abu Dhabi uh, exam, uh, acquisitions. And even the Met in New York, there are so many examples of uh, works in the collection of Met uh, and there's, I'm sure the students have been following those uh, stories, uh, those examples. So, so it's not just some small, uh, you know, isolated part of the art world which suffers from uh, rampant systemic issues when it comes to provenance and authenticity. And in a more contemporary context, also, I think uh, this part is less cliched and less well understood. But I think. A lot of the art market works on information asymmetry, in my mind. And when you add the layer of provenance or authentication, this also unfairly empowers certain parts of the ecosystem, like galleries, for example, or auction houses. Because a collector or an art buyer is not able to ascertain whether an artwork is authentic or not, they are forced to depend on a very few players, like, say, Christie's or Sotheby's, or auction houses like the Gagosians and the Hausens, and all. And in turn, the galleries exploit that information asymmetry that I was talking about to charge arbitrary prices and supernormal margins and uh, mistreat buyers, keep them waiting, use their own discretion. And in in polite terms, the lot of you know one thing that I've never been able to appreciate is all the euphemism that goes around in the art world, where we deliberately. So to me, it it sounds more like obfuscation than 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 uh, interpretation. But coming back to so so. Uh, okay, so while all this is there, bottom line is the artists, the creative people, the creators, the person who's at the core of that creation usually does not get to enjoy any of the benefits financially or otherwise. And especially when it comes to secondary and tertiary sales. So what the blockchain can do, and when it when you, you use it like an NFT uh, as a certificate of authentication on the blockchain, and NFTs are obviously non-fungible, so they're a string of code. But because they're non-fungible, they're customizable. So you can write whatever you want, unlike a cryptocurrency, which is fungible. So it is a standardized thing. Uh, so so therefore, the artist can feed in whatever royalty he expects on a secondary or a tertiary sale, for example. He can layer the digital uh, copy with a physical copy. So he, can, he might have made a physical painting. That's the other thing. I think in the art world, people think of physical and digital as polar opposites, 
but also mutually exclusive, which doesn't need to be the case. You can have a hybrid. You know, there's this term that goes around, which I don't like too much, uh, fidgetal. I hope we find a cooler word for it rather than the portmanteau that we have right now. But this whole fidgetal hybrid thing where even artists who make physical artworks can actually create an NFT uh, on the, uh, you know, sort of blockchain where they, uh, they, they, while on one hand they offer the physical copy as an entity in itself, but the NFT is basically the certificate of authenticity and which also has the chain of provenance. So the timestamping, et cetera, of the transactions. So, so I think that to my mind, so if you ask me in the next five years, if the art world can just dig deep, embrace the blockchain and focus on that to derive maximum benefits when it comes to provenance and authentication and ensuring artist resale rights, I think that's good enough. There are many, many other, uh, aspects also like how do we deal with digital scarcity etc which also blockchain can enable but i think if i apply the Pareto principle which is basically the 80 20 rule i think the 80 percent of the short-term benefits and even the medium-term benefits will come from you know cracking the code on pun intended on authentication and provenance so i think that's the big thing that i i think i would encourage the students as well as alumni who might be listening to this podcast to look at whether they're working in galleries, whether they're working in art fairs, auction houses, that's the space that, and which was the initial promise. When 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 NFTs came in, everybody was seduced by the ideal of how it will transform uh, authentication and digital provenance. But the focus has somehow digressed to the art market side of things because mm. of the big, big money that it generated. So yeah, I you're right. Now that cryptocurrencies have crashed, uh, you know, the number of transactions on NFTs have come down. I think now better sense can prevail and uh, one can look at rebuilding in the context of uh, uh, Metaverse and Web3 as well, uh, you know, this space. Sure, I remember, you're quite right, actually. And I do remember the first teaching I think I did in the Institute about the advent of blockchain and NFTs. I was it, it was it was really coming out of the ethics, the ethical possibilities. Um, you know that that this would mean that uh, you you actually had a, a record of the provenance of the object, uh, which which couldn't be couldn't be faked or challenged or copied. Which meant that from now on, at any rate, looking into the future, it may that it may not be retroactive, or it might be more difficult to do this retroactively. But from now on, we could an artist could actually. Uh, even a physical work could actually have its authenticity within a blockchain, maybe with some kind of hidden chip in the physical work that that links it to that digital source. If that makes sense, that was discussed. But it was definitely about it was definitely about trans. Sorry, sorry. There are augmented reality-based solutions also that enable something like that. So there's yeah. there's other things happening. Yeah. So that honestly, that was the, that the first things were all about this make the art world more transparent, more fair, more just. And as you say, that the artists can build in, you know, whenever there's a new transaction of this uh, of the um, token and the code um, and there's a monetary exchange, I, the artists will get percentage of that, which is a little bit like the analog version of resale royalty rights, where for the listeners if who don't know this, uh, uh, the UK it was an it was an EU thing in in the, in the European world um, already, uh, and then the UK because of um, the European Union, the EU um, I think joined it around about two thousand and six, which means that whenever 
say a Damien Hirst is sold at Sotheby's or uh, from another gallery on a secondary or tertiary sale, sale uh, the, the artists or, and or their estate, if they're dead up to a certain time, will get uh, a capped amount of money, a certain percentage, something like 4%. Uh, so it means that they're always um, benefiting from resales of their works. And the reason that is considered ethical is because often these works are purchased from them when they're young and exploitable and aren't very well known. And suddenly a work that's sold perhaps for £3,000 from a gallery is now selling for like three hundred thousand pounds, <laughs> and so that and, and the blockchain allows you to build that that into it, as as I understand it. The the other thing that you were saying, which was also you were saying, it's it, a lot of people in the art world think it's only about the art world, blockchain and NFTs, because that's what we keep reading in the news. But one of the first examples, I've probably still got the slide that I used to explain to the students what what the ethics of blockchain could be. Was 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 something that I did myself. It was a copy company. It's one of the first uses of blockchain, and they made sure that when I purchased a bag of coffee, I could check on the blockchain its origins way back, right back to the person who picked the coffee beans. And when I when I paid for my bag of coffee in London, and then it would be posted, sent out to me, I could see how much that postage was going to cost. I could see how much the middle person had made. But I could also give a tip to the person who picked the beans, often very in a very poor country. So the whole fit, that was a nice analogy whereby there was transparent, you know, we all talk about fair trade. I'm drinking fair trade coffee. How do you know? How do you know that that person who picked those beans is being paid properly? The blockchain enables you to be certain that that happens. Right, and it's just another form of provenance. Yeah, and, uh, it's all about provenance. Yeah. <laughs> so just, just to qualify that, it's also important to appreciate why digital is better. So while in the real world, we might have physical laws and physical you know, art world players, but the fact is that it is prone to manipulation especially given the fact that most of these institutions are privately held, not answerable uh, to the market. They don't have to report their finances. Sure. They don't report, have to report their work practices. And the art world per se is very, very unregulated. So, yes. And it's right at the top, whether it's Sotheby's or Christie's is, for example, private. And uh, the whole idea of Mario Draghi acquisition is also in that direction. So, uh, so, so therefore, on the contrary, blockchain is all out there. It's visible, accessible, and uh, uh, beyond manipulation. Because Absolutely. We, and no one person can, you know, sort of manipulate it. Interfere with it. And yesterday we had a, a, a lecture on part of our new professional practice unit. It's the last lecture, actually, um, about our, by an art advisor, uh, Michaela Milikuri. Um, she's, she's part of her work as art advisor. And she was saying that um, in her work, it can be really difficult to... To, to understand how many people are involved in the transaction of work of art, uh, because someone is asking for a certain commission and then you don't, you she might not know that that part of that commission is then given to someone else who was involved in the track, you know, and blockchain of course would, would make that all transparent and visible. Yeah, exactly. So we've had such high profile scams involving art advisors in the mm. recent past because a lot of transactions happen through them. So, uh, so there is absolutely, and, and, and Indo, um, something the listeners might not know yet. Although I will, I'll, I'll give a, uh, your 
some some links to your websites and so on to, to show them what you do. But you you've, you've, you're a writer, you're an avid writer on 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 different things, but but also now the the, the art market and the art world. Could you say something about um, uh, what you write about, um, what you find the trends in the art world in your writing that you've you've written about recently, and you know emerging developments to watch out for in the future no. in the art world that are coming through your current writing. Yeah, so- yeah, so that's that's like packing a lot of things. So I'll <laughs> I'll try and focus on some that I can answer quickly. Uh, so I think to start with, when I wrote the dissertation, uh, I got immersed into long format writing and really enjoyed it. And I've always been uh, interested in writing right from school and college magazines, uh, you know, editing college magazines, etc., things like that. But in a corporate career, it becomes more about writing business plans and strategy roadmaps and things like that. So, uh, and we also felt dislocated during the lockdown. So the, it was a good way to stay in touch with what was happening in the world. So those were the things that came into writing. What I like to write, also you are aware, David, because you've been my supervisor in my dissertation and also my guide. Uh, I, I've w- wanted to do a PhD after this. Mm. So, so therefore writing uh, is something that keeps me in that direction. And especially what I really like is research-based writing where I'm able to go deep into some a topic that intrigues me and you know interests me and uh, learn more about it from multiple sources, interview people, read p- papers, and then you know sort of distill all that analysis into something that is meaningful to read and it can be educative, informative, action-oriented, uh, but essentially something that's more research-based and educative. That's, so that, those are the kind of writing that I've been focusing on. And yes, uh, my... The, my primary focus is on obviously the intersection of art and technology, which is what I've written mostly about. I'll share the links. Uh, uh, in fact, uh, one of the, the most recent article I wrote about is how a museum in Ukraine was actually collaborating with modern uh, contemporary NFT artists to reinterpret works from their old masters in their collection, uh, both to you know sort of widen the appeal of their works, but also to raise funds for restoration and damage of repairs that they've suffered during the war. So that's a very interesting piece I wrote. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of trends for people to watch out on, I think, uh, so I'll, I'll just quickly list out a lot of no, things. Please do. Each yeah. one of them is a rabbit hole in itself. I think uh, on the museums and institutional side, I think uh, it's good to look at how museums and institutions can use digital technologies to offer more immersive experiences because they are more expensive, you need stronger tech collaborations. And I personally think there's a capability mismatch within the museum to be able to understand how to use those technologies like virtual reality, augmented reality, etc. So there, is, there are a lot of barriers to uh, uh, adoption. But I think when certain tech players like let's say Microsoft or some of the you know uh, people who make headsets, etc., uh, when they reach out to these museums, typically to showcase their most innovative products, things fall into place. And if you look at the Tate or the VNA uh, immersive exhibitions, for example, you will notice brands are involved in driving that activity rather than the museum. So it's good to. So what I would say is, please go to these exhibitions, experience them, understand who are the various collaborators who come together to put together the exhibition. It's not just a curator and some artworks. There is a lot of tech layers in play. So that's one. So immersive exhibition. Second is use of AI. And I think 
we have not even touched the tip of the iceberg, uh, iceberg yet in terms of artificial intelligence. It can be uh, implemented across various aspects of a museum's working and its engagement and uh, ex uh, visitor experiences. So, for example, it could be used as the back end to understand how visitors behave in the museum. So, if you, for example, uh, it's it's just about technologies talking to each other. So, there are many things in the museum which from where data can be fed to understand how visitor flow is like. And the artificial intelligence now with machine learning and GANs, there's been an exponential, you know, a quantum jump in terms of the possibilities. And a lot of that technology is open source and very easily accessible to developers. And if museums collaborate with them, they can easily do projects related to that. So once you understand visitor flow better, rather than asking the gallery assistants, which are the uh, artworks people spend more time in front of, you would actually have, uh, you know, huge amounts of data to study and you can decide how to place your paintings and so on and so forth. The possibilities are endless. You know, a, bit, a, a little bit like heat maps after a football match where you see where each player has spent time on the field. And also, I, I do I do know that security uses that as well. So, so, that, so the, the algorithms will actually say there's strange behavior in this person, the way they're moving around the museum. <laughs> Right. So that's that's my key, uh, you know, complaint also against museums. Museums tend to uh, use technologies or any such things uh, at the back end to drive efficiency, but they're not that focused on visitor engagement or visitor experiences. Sure. So they need to become more oriented towards that. So there is immersive experiences, there is AI, then there is... Uh, so on the NFTs, blockchain, metaverse, uh, Web3 side, I think it is good what they should again one of the mental blocks that i think the art world has is they're too fixated on instagram there is a lot of action on digital art and you know the blockchain and web3 is happening uh, on twitter and discord platforms like that and uh, i think i would actively encourage the students and alumni to actually spend more time on those platforms so they'll get to know what's happening they should follow artists on twitter rather than instagram or only instagram because in, the beauty about Twitter or Discord for that matter is that these are places where conversations happen more organically, whereas Instagram is more visual. So the stimulus is visual. Yes, conversations happen there also. But, uh, you know, once people experience it, they'll understand. Uh, then the next thing that I would say is also look at uh, when it comes to Metaverse and Web3, one of the cornerstones of that is that it's social first or it's socially driven. So a lot of those insights actually come from the way gaming has evolved, for example. And gaming today, especially amongst Gen Z, is a big, big uh, industry. And also in terms of time spent, it's obscene how, I don't know how uh, how it is now once the pandemic is sort of abated. But during the pandemic, the numbers that were coming out, it was insane in terms of how much. And, and in any case, it's not going to change just because the pandemic goes away. Let's be clear. So. So I think gaming is something that is good for people to understand for an outside in perspective. Uh, there are a lot of interest and, and I'm sure most of the students, given the age groups that they are in, they have been gamers in some form or the other. So I think the uh, Gen Z, uh, we relate, I mean, they relate to it well. And I think uh, they should also, now what has happened is uh, in 2020 and 2021, a lot of these events were actually virtual. But now a lot of them are becoming IRL or in real life. So uh, a lot of NFT conferences, fairs, etc. are opening up. So whether it's a place like Barcelona or London, London recently had one. 
or even in the US. Uh, and, and even the regular art fairs, like Art Basel Miami, which is going to happen pretty soon, will have a layer to it. So it's important for students, wherever they are, to actively seek out these kind of events because that's where you can meet meet people. And the best thing about the digital art ecosystem is people are really accessible. So, you know, while a tier one artist or a tier one gallery may not be as accessible to a student, but uh, through Twitter virtually or in uh, in person, you can easily walk up to them, have a conversation, stay in touch. Uh, it's far more, uh, you know, sort of uh, deeper as an engagement in that sense. So I think now that uh, during our time, we were slightly constrained, but we took advantage of it by reaching out to the world virtually. But now I think we can reach out in person. And I think that is the other thing they should do. And Indo, I'm aware at the time, and, and I, I'm, I'm also aware that we were going to talk about India and the art world in India. So right. um, I think that we need to do another podcast. Uh, where we focus not on your interest in NFTs and blockchain. Well, maybe sometimes, but I think it, you you have quite a knowledge, obviously, about the Indian art market, the non-resident in, in, uh, Indians, the NRIs, as we as we used to call them. I don't know if we still call them that. Like people resident in in, in the UK who are who are buying Indian art, and, and and I can talk also about 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 when I began to become aware of uh, Indian art, particularly Indian contemporary art, earlier earlier in the new millennium. So I think we'll end this here because I think there's another podcast to talk about India. And I may even get one or two other people who are from India to join a kind of panel discussion so that you can come at it together because it's a big subject, obviously, and a subject that really interests me. Right. Absolutely. So I think we've packed in a lot in this conversation (laughs) anyway, and I think attention spans would also be dwindling. And as you're aware, I actually... Uh, take the lecture on the Indian art ecosystem as part of the Emerging Market Selective. Uh, of course you do. Yes, of course. So some of the students will hear about that anyway. Yeah, this year with Viv. So I'm sure the students, uh, if next year I happen to take that lecture, anyway, we'll have that. So Yeah. I'm not, to be honest, Anindo, um, I'm, not abs- I'm not absolutely certain whether that for various reasons, I'm not. I don't think that elective's running. In which case, it makes it even more important that we do another podcast, and or and or that we get you in to talk within the core MAR Business International Art World unit about the Indian art market. So I will I will get in touch with the unit leader to to to, to see whether we could do that as well. But I, uh, on behalf of all the listeners in Indo, thank you very much for sharing your ideas about this wonderful emerging world of the of, of, of art and tech. So thank you very much for being with us today. The pleasure was mine. Uh, it's always amazing to uh, talk to you. Thank you.